Did you hit the man with the chicken? Listen, I, you know, my chicken was cold. I didn't want it anymore. It was cold. It was cold. And now you guys have pieced up. You guys are. Uh... Now pieced up. He giving me thirty quid back. <coughs> for, for, uh... He paid. For yeah, he paid. He paid me for me chicken. So that's, that was that. That's all I wanted. He paid for me chicken. That's what happened. Here comes the lineal champ himself. Can we grab a word? I mean, chicken tastes good, Deontay. Listen, he tried to bully middleweight, Billy Joe, don't take no shit from nobody. He said, oh, did you call me something? He said, yeah, I did, mate. What are you going to do about it? We all saw what happened. Billy Joe Saunders, he ain't heavyweight, but he will fight anybody. And let me tell you, for that, I'm going to punish Deontay Wilder. I'm going to pepper him all night and then land that bang. See you later. Left, right, good night. And welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where when coaches have issues, it's not resolved on the Oscar stage, but it is resolved around the back of the Guildford Spectrum. Yeah, you heard that right, the Guildford Spectrum. What, 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 a, what a sport we live in, what a sport we love. But, you know, I'm not even going to touch on that just because I think it's still a sensitive topic at, the t- at, at this time. And I don't, I don't necessarily want to get drawn into something that's not my business. But, you know, it, it was just a mad 24 hours to see how Hollywood addresses issues and how amateur boxing addresses issues. But let's kick on with with the episode. And it's Monday Mass. I don't even know if I'm going to get this in on time because as of speaking right now, it's about 10 to 11. So pray for me. But I wanted to start with the Matchroom show. And here's why. Despite all of the the stuff we've said about Eddie Hearn and he's a bit clueless in this modern era and he hasn't got that that first mover advantage he had probably eight, nine years ago. He still manages to deliver what I call the seminal events in British boxing. Now, on Sunday I was watching Brook versus Golovkin again, and I just 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 the ring walks for Brook Golovkin. What 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 was it in total? About four and a half, five minutes? They may be the highest of the high points of British boxing. I genuinely think Brook versus Golovkin was the best event British boxing's ever delivered. And people will argue and they'll tell me that there were fights that had more significance. I'm not talking about the significance of the fight. What I'm talking about is an event where nothing, nothing went, not only did nothing go wrong, but there was such a precision to it that you're just like, wow. I hadn't even noticed those small details. You know, like... When Golovkin comes out and, you know, DMX hits the, what's my name? And right on cue, Gennady Golovkin is on the screens. And then he does his normal entrance. I thought, wow. Like, whoever pulled that together, you know, that's real creativity and that's that's precision and discipline. So, you know, we're waiting for other promoters to get to that level. Yeah, we give Eddie a hard time for how he conducts business and it's, it's deserved. Let's be clear about this. It's deserved. What you can never question is, when he gets it right, he delivers an event. And Warrington versus Martinez, essentially these are two guys who have seen better days, right? But look at that arena. The atmosphere, the energy. I've, I talked to guys who were there, and they can't believe how intense that was. And you've got to give Eddie credit for that, because he's always hung his hat on that. He delivers the best events in British boxing, and he has done. So credit to him for doing that. Credit for all the guys involved. As I said in the previous show, the, the card was solid. 
I thought it was a really good main event, but I thought everything else was kind of workmanlike and solid. And so, and so it proved, but like I said, the event and the atmosphere almost mitigate for that. You know, I enjoyed watching Dalton Smith. Um, it's tricky to work out how to feel about Dalton Smith. In a world where Adam Azim is testing himself after three fights, and yes, Conor Marsden was a test, we'll come on to that later, we'd like to see Dalton Smith, a guy who has mixed in some, some higher levels, we'd like to see him now gamble a bit and test himself. Would Dalton Smith jump in with a Robbie Davis Jr. after 10 fights? Would that be a powerful statement if he could do that? I think so. Do I think he's got the ability to do that? 100%. So why wouldn't you? But I don't know. His team will know better than I do. But one thing I do know is when you've got someone that talented, and remember, he's the son of a boxing coach, so it's not like he's new to the sport. Number one and number two, it's not like he's boxing with a fresh body. He's 25 years old, but he's a boxing 25 years old as well. So he's not a guy that took up the sports at 16, 17, and now you know, the body's relatively fresh. He has a body that has been boxing since he was a kid. So number one, you know, it's not going to last forever. And number two, it means that he can take a few more risks. So I'd like to see that. I thought he boxed brilliantly of the bits that I was able to see. And I've gone back and watched some of the replays. I thought he was really, really good. A bit reckless in how we threw some of his shots. And I can see why the ref deducted points. But that happens. And people say to me, where does that come from? Do you know it comes from? It comes from the bag work. A lot of guys like to throw looping shots at the bag. It looks good. Yeah, it looks good. It's a chance for you to test your leverage. You know, you can get those long kind of Tommy Hearns type punches in. 100%. But at the same time, you should be working on their discipline to put them in the right place. Because, you know, losing at championship level, losing two points in a fight is deadly. You know, but I don't want to take too much away from Dalton Smith. I thought the guy performed, man. Like the way he he put Ray, is it Millet? The way he put him down with that second knockdown, where he took his right hand on the felt like a salute block from where I was seeing. He just took it nicely in the crook of the arm, and then not immediately, but a split second later, bam, with the left hook, with real authority. That's something you rarely see in a British boxing ring. Now, when I saw that, I was like, oh God, how many British guys would have done that? Not many. Most would have caught that shot, come back with an uppercut, or come back with a right hook. The fact that he came back with a left hook, wow, highly, highly impressive. I, I think he's a good kid. What I like about him is, in the amateurs, he wasn't a guy that just ran over everyone. So he was the kind of guy who, he won some and he lost some. And I think those defeats when you were young, imprint the discipline and the hunger you need to succeed as a pro and I think he's got the right balance of that amateur experience enough setbacks and unbelievable talent so I'm looking forward to see what he does but I think realistically if you're building him and you're you're almost setting milestones for him they feel a bit like putting him in with a guy like a like a Kate Prosper or Sam or Maison and building from there and then you can move him up to a, a Tyrone McKenna the guy that fought Hara Davis before then moving him up to start challenging the top end of the British guys. And you could do that in what? A year, year, year and a half, you could have those sorts of fights. And then he's kind of in that discussion of your, for me, he's in that discussion of your Jack Catrells, your Hara Davises, those top level British guys. 
And it's a shame, well, it's, the good thing is he's moved so fast that he's moved past his rivals like Tiernan Bradley, the, the Irish lad that he lost to in the Commonwealth, well, the Commonwealth Youth Games. So he's moved past all of his peers due to his talent. So now he's literally just chasing. And he should take the, the sort of inspiration from someone like Shakur Stevenson, who just said, I'm going after everyone as fast as I can, because I think he's got the talent to do that. I genuinely think we might have someone to, to take notice of then. Kudos to Eddie for believing in him. And to follow that, Maxi Hughes is continuing the, the Indian summer to his career now with the you know successful defense of his IBO belt. Pretty one-sided win um, against Ryan Walsh. You know, I think the Walsh brothers have probably seen better days and they've been in the game a long time. So you look at that and go, well, I guess that's the role they now need to fulfill, you know, almost like enhancement talent. So they'll just put other people over. You know, I thought it was good. Like you almost, you know, you had Maxi as a co-main event for Josh Warrington, so they're training partners, and you could feel the energy in the Yorkshire crowd, like just full on, you know, supporting their guys. Which, in some ways, is nice. But if you know Leeds, like some of us know Leeds, it's also quite a toxic environment. But it comes across good on TV. Now, I'm, it's a tricky place we are with Maxi Hughes, right? Because we've got to ask ourselves: How seriously do we take the IBO belt? And as fans, we need to determine whether it's a serious belt or it's not. We can't let promoters tell us it's a serious belt. We're either in a four-belt era or a five-belt era. Or more importantly, if we're going to go with the IBO, can we at least get rid of the WBA? No, I, you know, I think that would be a fairer picture for the fans because I think the IBO kind of would be a useful extension of the IBF in the sense that you kind of, there's an objective way you can understand their rankings. So with the IBF, you know, yeah, at least once a year, you're going to be called to defend your belt. And it's going to be based on the rankings. So you can kind of plan that. And I think it's the same with the IBO. It's just with the WBA. Jesus, man, Will Smith might be one of the cruiserweight contenders the way things are going. So another area where we need to give Eddie credit is for the effort he's done with women's boxing. Now, is it selfish? Probably because they're a lower cost option for driving up interest and engagement. And if you're being cynical, you'll say he's trying to attract more female fans. And kudos to him for doing so. Because, you know, I'm a fan of women's boxing. I, th I think I said in the previous episode, where you see how some of these youngsters are boxing at the moment, the standard is only going to get significantly better. Take that from me. It's what the pipeline is looking healthy for female boxing. But on Saturday, on the Sky Show, we got to see Ebony Bridges. We got to see Sky Nicholson. So two Australians that he's clearly building for the Australian market, right? At some point, Eddie Hearn is going to go into Australia and do something. Now, whether he does it with George Gambosos down the line, I don't know. But if he's able to do something with Dempsey McKean, um, Sky Nicholson, Ebony Bridges, and you know there'll be a few others that you can sign from there, like Katie Parker, for example. And if he's able to build something out there while using the UK as a launch pad, I can see that making economic sense. In terms of Ebony Bridges, she gets a hard time, right? She gets an absolute savaging online for, for the way that she looks. Now, people are always going to do that. You know, I get it. Others get it. Loads of people get that. And I generally think you become callous to it. Like you build up these emotional calluses to it just because it's like, well, you're not saying anything original. You're not saying anything I haven't heard before. But here's the thing I will say about Ebony Bridges. God, can she fight. 
you know, we can look at all of these things like, was she on steroids during her bodybuilding days and is she living with that advantage? Now, no idea. What I do know is in those two implants that she's carrying, that's a, that's a whole weight class that she, she could easily go down. Right? So she, she gives up weight in a lot of ways. But geez, does she... She doesn't fight like she looks, does she? And I really respect that. She's just a mauling, brawling, a nightmare of an opponent to deal with. There may not be a lot of finesse, but those punches look like they hurt. And they don't stop coming. And that is what I'll give her absolute respect for. You know with Ebony Bridges, it's not going to be a boring fight. You know, it's going to be blood and guts all the way through. And so it proved on Saturday. And, you know... You look, you, you look at that sort of win and you say, okay, what do you do with her next? Do you, do you put her in with someone like Ellie Scott? And being honest, I think Elle needs some time. Because Elle's got to learn how to stand in the pocket and fight fire with fire. Can it, for two minutes, can you stay there with Ebony Bridges while she's throwing those big looping punches and just pick her off? It's a hard skill set to master. So <laughs> what do you do? You can't keep running from her. She doesn't let you run. At some point, maybe she fights Sky Nicholson, and I can see that being a hard fight. Not because of any severe power coming back. It's just, when you watch Ebony Bridges, you're like, that's just a hard night's work. And kudos to her, because, as, as I keep saying, she could just live off this kind of Australian Barbie doll reputation. Right? She could live off of that. But she doesn't. Like, she gives you... She gives you what you want as a fighter. She gives you that real warrior spirit. So I've got nothing but respect for Ebony Bridges. Like, it's taken a while to win me over. But her performances tell me that, you know, she's here to fight. But in a similar way, I feel the same way about Sky Nichols. And obviously Sky fought Beck Connolly, who people know I'm a, I'm a fan of. But Sky, there's menace in those punches. It doesn't look it because she's so relaxed and it looks so easy. But there's menace in those punches. You could hear some of them. And you're like, those are hard punches. And you could tell from Beck Conley's reaction that she was feeling a lot of those shots. And I think that's what Eddie's kind of kept about Sky Nicholson. He's kept that, that looseness. And in that looseness comes a lot of power. I'm going to talk about this later when it comes to Richard Reactpool. But there are ways you can strengthen that. And if, if they can find those ways to strengthen it, I think Sky Nicholson is going to be a problem for a lot of people. Not just in her current weight class, but you could move up to Super Feather. In time, could she move up to Lightweight? Maybe. Depends how she matures, because she's still young. But, you know I mean, the journey continues for her. And like I keep saying, I'm happy for Eddie Lamb. I mean, he gets the spotlight on the matchroom show. And he gets to show you what he's capable of. So all of you fighters out there who are looking for a good trainer. And you haven't been ringing Eddie Lamb all these years. Now look. I mean, look at what he's been cooking in the background. So no, no, so I was, I was happy about that. But they're probably the only fights I want to touch on just because in the interest of time and, you know, and everything. I'm definitely not going to get this done by, by the end of Monday. God. But let's touch on Kiko Martinez versus Josh Warrington. Now, I don't know how to call this fight. I don't know what to describe this fight as. Do you guys remember when Roy Jones and Bernard Hopkins fought and both men were like, I think it was like, what was it, 42 and 45 respectively? And, yeah, it was an okay fight, but you knew these were men on the way down. And that's how I felt watching Warrington versus Martinez. You know, prior to the fight, I said it would be an entertaining fight. And so it proved. Warrington looked rejuvenated. And 
you know, if you didn't understand the backstory, if you didn't understand Kiko Martinez's career, you'd be like, oh my God, Josh Warrington looks like a world beater. But that's the Kiko Martinez who was getting pretty much outboxed by Kid Galahad, who was coasting to a comfortable defense before he got caught. Warrington got caught in this fight as well and had his jaw broken. So that's all Kiko Martinez had was just like a, a one-hitter-quitter, just a one-off punch that he might land. He was never going to win it on work rate. He was never going to win it on boxing nows. He was always going to be there to be hit by someone like Josh Warrington. You know, so as, an, as a benchmark opponent, this tells us nothing about the Josh Warrington that pretty much, for me, got beaten up twice by Mauricio Lara, right? We don't know if Warrington's better than he was in those two fights. We don't know if the crowd would have made a difference. We have zero idea. What we know for absolute certain is that Kiko Martinez would lose to any of the contenders at 126. Yeah. Eddie did a good job in convincing us that this guy still had something in the tank. He didn't. And, you know, people looked at his physique and it... It looked enhanced, that's not to say it was. It looked enhanced because he hasn't looked that good even in a smaller weight class. But you have to be happy for Josh because it's redemption in front of your home fans. Like a lot of people were prepared to write him off, me included. And as he alluded to in his interview, he's not Eddie Hearn's favorite person. And like, you know, we all know that Eddie doesn't forgive you if you leave Matchman and come back. He makes your life hard, as he did with Lara. But Josh has come back, he's overcome it, he's got that belt now. Now the question is, can Eddie let him unify, or will Eddie try and take the belt off him again? Will we start to hear the kid Galahad noises? I really hope we don't, but I wouldn't be surprised if we do. The Lee, the Lee Wood unification, I don't see happening next. And I don't think that's a great fight for Josh, to be honest with you, because... You know, you, you've seen what you've seen what Lee Wood is capable of. You know, and we know that Josh doesn't take too well to to those sorts of heavy shots, and especially with a broken jaw. Do you ever fully recover that punch resistance? I I would wonder if you do. I don't think you know. Like, I was Jazza Dickens the same after the Rigondeaux shot? Was Ricky Burns the same after Raimondo Beltran broke his jaw? I think it was Beltran that broke his jaw. You would argue no. But I am happy for Josh Warrington. I'm not, I'm not going to pretend. I thought it was a, a good performance. I thought he conducted himself really well, as always. I thought Lee Wood conducted himself well when they tried to put pressure on him to call for the unification. And Lee Wood just straight batted it and said, no, let him enjoy his moment. We can talk about that another time. And credit to Lee Wood because he's not putting many feet wrong. Like He's not making any bad moves at the moment. And he's just enhancing his reputation. You know, he, I, I always like that about people who build up a new fan base just based on how they conduct themselves. And he's definitely convinced me that, you know what I mean, he's someone I should be a fan of. But no, no, so to summarize, look, good match from show, um, mostly trade fights. It's one of those for regular view, boxing viewers. You know, the main event may have appealed to the casual market, but outside of that, it was competent. And I think the visual spectacle makes you want to go up to Leeds to watch a Warrington fight. Let's not pretend otherwise, because they, fi they find a way to make it work up there. So credit to everyone, credit to the guys involved. And, you know, let's see what Eddie's got for us next. Yeah, and, you know, without further ado, let's, let's see what the competition were able to produce for us. So, so Sky's sit in this really interesting place. Well, not interesting at all, actually. A unique place. 
where where Eddie's made his bet at the top end, your Warringtons, your Devin Haney's, historically, um, your Golovkins, you know, he wants to make those kinds of fights, right? Events, as Eddie likes to describe them. Events. Sky have gone the other way, and they've invested in, you know, fattening out their pyramid of prospects and building up that way. And what that means is, they're under pressure to deliver breakout performances at every show. So every show should have a prospect make a breakthrough, right? And that's when they cross over from being a guy who people talk about being talented to who you see with your own eyes and go, ah, okay, okay, we need to take him a bit more seriously. We need to really start zeroing in on this sort of talent. And do they get it right? A lot of times they do. I'll give you an example. The Dan Aziz Isaiah Burton fight. That was a breakout performance, right? That took Dan from, from like almost like level two to level seven. And so you look for those sorts of performances from your, your stable of prospects. It, ha- it hasn't always gone well. Steve Robinson has flattered to deceive thus far. We haven't seen enough of Huey Fury. There, there, there are loads of things we haven't seen yet. What you can say on Saturday is you got two breakout performances for sure. And then the rest depend on how you view them. Adam Azim's performance, wow. Wow. It's easy, like... It's easy as a casual fan to go, well, I never knew who Conor Marsden was. He probably wasn't very good. Not true. Not true at all. Conor Marsden is talented. Conor Marsden has the depth of experience in the sport that you, you respect what he's done up until this point. That's not a bum. That's not a soup can. That's not a journeyman. I mean, he's a prospect. I mean, get him down to 135 and he's going to cause people problems. What happened, like, I've heard it from the Ellsfield camp that, that Conor Marsden got caught cold. No, he didn't. Round one, round two, rounds, whatever. That shot was always going to put him down. And there are a number of reasons why, you know, the height's a factor, the way he stands is a factor. But that shot is vastly underrated. The, the one-two followed by the straight left. It's not a jab. Let's be clear about this. That's not a jab. That punch that they throw, it's a straight left. And when you see a lot of people train and they throw a one-two, and then the next call is either a single jab or a double jab, most people throw that jab going backwards because, you know, the, the British ways to tell people, get out of trouble. Not always the right solution. What Adam Azim did is just say, right, I'm going to boom this left straight down the middle. And Conor Marston's probably not used to seeing that. Definitely not in that sequence. And what happened was, because he wasn't expecting it, he wasn't set up for it. He wasn't set up to receive that shot. And that's how it was able to do what it did. You know, and then being tall, and Adam Azim clearly being able to, to punch reasonably hard, was able to get that advantage from which Connor never recovered. Now, is it a lack of preparation? I don't know, because the truth is, if we roll back a couple of years, if someone had said Adam Azim would have to fight Conor Marsden in the amateurs, you wouldn't flinch. You'd be like, yeah, whatever. Competitive fight. Let's see what the kids got. Maybe that crept into the preparation for Conor Marsden, where they were like, we should have this kid. Because he didn't look like he had been warmed up to the right temperature for, for that first round. One thing Shane's fighters are is always warm. Like he gets them to the right level where they're ready to go straight out the box. And that's how they're able to, to get the jump on people. And Connor didn't look like he was. 
if you watch it back, as brief as it was, the jab was tentative. Your jab should never be tentative. You should never be like, mm, I'm not sure about throwing it. That first jab should be authoritative. Even if you miss, yeah, they, they'll feel that force. I mean, I go, oh, okay, he's not, he's not here to mess around. And I, I didn't see any of that from Conor Marsden. I didn't see any attempt to establish himself psychologically in the fight. And Adam Azim did. And that's how it ended in the first round. Do I think it's over for Conor Marsden? Nah. He, he'll be back and he'll find his level. And his level is somewhere around that area level, English, Commonwealth. Somewhere in there is where he'll probably level off. And hopefully he has a good, solid career. Because like I said, he's been a good servant to the sport. But as for Adam Azim, a bit like Dalton Smith, what do you do with him now? So he's shown that he's better than area level after three fights. Do you test him against someone at English level? Do you find one of those older guys at 135 like a Sean Dodd and bring him up to 140 and go, right, what can you do against this guy? It's something like that, but... There's a level you can move him past, and I think it's the English level you can move him past. And once you get him past there, he'll need to mature, and he'll need to be able to take heavier shots more consistently, and he'll need to be able to learn how to pace himself over the course of these longer fights. I think that's where you want to get him to. So you don't want to waste your time down at the area level, just building up experience that's not going to help him. Accelerate him to a point, and then say, right, here's what we're going to plateau for six months to a year. And I think, you know, Sky should do that because he looks like he's got something. But until we see him tested with shots coming back, very, very hard to say what he can take and how far he can go. But exciting nonetheless. In terms of the other breakout performance, for me, it was the Richard Reactor against Dion Juma performance. And, you know, it's easy to say, ah, Dion Juma, you know, flat to deceive his whole career, this and the third. And, there's validity to those arguments, but the truth is Dion Juma's a hard man to outbox. Dion Juma's a hard man to beat in a fight. And there's a reason why he is so avoided by so many people. Because he's a hard night's work for anyone. So for Richard Riakpour to take that fight was impressive. And it was clearly this. That when you look at that fight, the, the question was, can Dion stay away from the power shots? And for Richard, it was just like, can I land clean? It was never going to be about the nuance of the boxing. What are they going to do when they get inside? It, Richard doesn't have any of that. And at 32, Richard's not going to get any of that. Richard just needs to stay out of trouble, find a punching lane for his straight right hand, and when he lands that, it seems every fight changes. You know, so now you've got to give credit to these guys like Jack Massey and Chris Billum-Smith who were taking the, the heavy fire and still able to make it competitive. I thought Dion made it competitive. I, I, I was starting to get the feeling that Dion might be racking up rounds and building up a lead here. And then, boom, when Richard detonated that straight right in the fourth round, I think it was the fourth round. For me, I said, ah, this fight's done now. Because that punch would have, that would have felled anyone. I don't think anyone's taking the punch. The way he lent in and threw that, I think there are a lot of heavyweights that would have gone down as well. That was an amazing punch to, like, just to find that under the kind of fire that he was taking in that moment. I thought that was really impressive by Richard. But it looked instinctive. That didn't look like anything that was trained, although it's not for me to say. It looked, that looked like kind of Miguel's Richard. 
you know, all of this trying to box like a Cuban stuff, I just don't think it works for him. I think Miguel's Richard is the guy that could get to a world title. I think Miguel's Richard is the guy that will give Lawrence trouble. Uh, this whole, you know, Chicolato boxing like, um, older Savon and all this sort of stuff. Nah, that ain't going to fly. But I thought Richard did well. You know, let's, let's not hold out hope for him being this super slick, tall, rangy boxer, this Tommy Hearns type guy. He's not. He's just going to be a guy who can punish people. And if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you're going to hit the floor. You know, so I can't give the trainer credit here because Richard's been doing this since the Lynn days. Do you know what I mean? That, that, that's been Richard's stock in trade. So I can't see the value add from being up in Loughborough, if I'm being honest with you. Maybe it's a good diversion and it keeps him from distractions, but I don't see the value add outside of that. But it's crazy. I was looking... You know when you, you, you start to look at some of these guys who can really, really crack, right? And you look at... Um, Rich is a good example. Um, Dan Aziz is, is a decent example. He still hasn't sorted his mechanics out, but he's he's got the the real potential to, to detonate. You know, Deceptive Uma Sadiq had hands as well. You know, you look at guys like Joshua, who are all heavy-handed guys. And one thing I find really interesting is if you look at them physically, small legs... Like, as a proportion of their body mass, their legs aren't really that, but they've got a disproportionate amount of mass in their upper back. So, if you look across their back, especially down the trapezius, like, it's, it's otherworldly, you know? Like, with mine, my, my, mine aren't super developed, man. I've got, I've got enough that I can lift what I need to lift, but that's more from training as opposed to being blessed by the genetic gods. But it seems a lot of those guys, and you can put Wilder in that camp too, those guys that have that that explosive power, that real ability to detonate, seem to have that. I mean, they might all just be from the same tribe, to be honest, I don't know. But I, I find that interesting because a lot of times in boxing, they talk about, you got to get your legs bigger, you got to do this, you got to do that. But it's the guys with the skinny legs, go back to guys like Tommy Hearns. You know, they've got the skinny legs and the kind of turtle back, and they just seem able to detonate. And I don't know if it's that you're using the bigger muscle groups to generate more force. Because a lot of people think, you know, it's your pushing muscles that generate the punch power. But a lot of times, if you can generate force with your, your glutes, if you can generate force with your upper back, you get that extra whip and speed. I don't know what it is. I'm still looking into it. But I just find it really interesting when you look at the sort of physiology of those guys with the explosive power. They seem to broadly align around some common themes. But overall, man, it was an absolutely stacked card. Um... You know, it gave you a bit of everything. You know, Chris Congo coming back, um, looking good, points win. Um, had the guy running around the ring, like, you know, <laughs> it's almost like a rare moment of slapstick comedy. But Chris looked meaner. He, he looked like he'd been around Josh Taylor and he was incorporating some of those ideas. So he was definitely less of the Miguel's Chris, who was step forward, step back. Now it was actually, let me, let me seek and destroy and I think the Seek and Destroy Chris Congo, whoo, he could be a force. And I'd like to see more of that. And hopefully, like, you know, Sky will get him out regularly. Because he's a guy that the fans, we want to see how good he can be. And, you know, we don't want any ifs, buts, or maybes. So I think that would be good, actually. Um, I thought he was really good. Um, keeping the Congolese theme going, Jamie Shakiva made his debut. The, the most old-school-looking heavyweight ever, like... 
I really enjoyed watching him. You know, I know people want heavyweights to have explosive knockouts on their debut, but the thing with Jamie is he will do that to everyone. And as he starts to tighten up, I think as Jamie just coalesces around the things that work for him, he'll get better and better. Like he, He's new to the strength and conditioning stuff. Like He hasn't really maximized you know, just his raw physicality. And I think if, if Ben Davison and those guys can get that part improved, there's a massive growth area for him in terms of what he can deliver in the ring. It's that physicality. Like I said, you know, have you got the strong hamstrings, the strong glutes, the strong upper back? A lot of the muscles that you neglect in boxing gyms because most boxing coaches don't know how to build overall strength. People talk about functional strength. I don't know what they really mean when they say functional. It's a stupid term. But definitely talk about sports-specific strength. And not just that, but building a general base of capability so you're just a stronger human being all around. I think that's really what Jamie should be aiming for. And he's got, he's, he's got the drive to do that now. He looks hungry. So I was happy with his debut. You know, Caroline Dubois was just Caroline Dubois. You know, I think talent-wise, forget, forget gender for a second. Talent-wise, I think she's light years ahead of almost everybody in this country. But what she needs to do now is show us that it's not just boxing maturity, is that there's raw physicality there and there's that in-ring intelligence, which I think is all there, actually. You know, every time I speak to her and Daniel, you know, they never deviate too far from the script. Good people, got a lot of time for them. Um, and I'm really, really happy for Caroline Dubois. You know, she seems happy in her environment. And, you know, her and Eddie Scottney working together, I think is actually going to be amazing for British boxing if those two can just vibe off each other. But I also want to just touch on a couple of the fights that, you know, are relatively unknown to, to the wider boxing public. So, Joe Pigford. Oh, my God. Um, Joe, what a guy. Um, so, Joe's trained by a friend of mine, Kev Thornley. Great guy. Like, great guy. Known him for what, six, six and a half years. You know, came up in the amateurs. You probably know one of his charges, Chris Billum-Smith. And so that was him in the amateurs. In the pros, he's working with, I think, Lee Cutler, for one, and definitely working with Joe Pigford. And so I've enjoyed Joe Pigford since he fought Aaron Morgan and stopped him. And Joe's a strange one. And it doesn't make a lot of sense. (laughs) Because you watch Joe Pigford box, and it's unorthodox. And you're like, fucking hell, he does a lot of things wrong. But good coaches leave that because you're like, well, he's comfortable doing that. Everything seems to make sense to him doing that. And as long as he can land those big shots, he's okay. And so you're watching it round after round and you're like, God. Not necessarily that it's hard work to watch Joe Pigford, but you're like, I hope he doesn't blow it. Because like I said, you need breakout performances, right? And what Joe needed was a breakout performance, so it would be credible for him to start calling out guys like Kieran Conway and guys at that level. And when he found that right hand, my God, did he find the right hand. <laughs> that mouth guard, forget the opponent's name right now, but that mouth guard is still in orbit right now. That's as clean and as beautiful a right hand knockout as you're going to see. And so when I look at guys like Joe Pigford, I'm like, brilliant. Now you can step up. Now you can call for bigger fights and bigger names. 
And because you gave that kind of performance, the broadcaster's got more confidence in you. And also, just for, for Kev's perspective as a trainer, mate, well done. The things you wanted to happen, happened. And so onwards and upwards for him, I'd like to... I don't know if you put him in with those guys like Ted just yet. Just because they've got the experience of the big occasion. You keep building him at that sort of level. Um, so in terms of where you put him next... So a good option, God, would have been someone like Kieran Geffen, right? But I think he's moved up. There's Tony Dixon out there. But it's, it's actually a struggle up beyond that. So I don't know who you would put him in with. Unless you pull someone up from 147. But, you know, that's going to, matching him is going to be interesting. To, you know, I mean, to see where they position him. But no, I thought that, that was a hell of a knockout. And that's the sort of thing you want to see on a, on a boxer show. Because, like I said, it makes a statement. The second fight, less of a statement. Um, Louis Green versus Harry Scarf definitely one for the trade definitely one for the hard cause it definitely was um, I, I jumped in and out of that fight I'm not, not going to pretend otherwise because it was it looked like Harry Scarf would win that comfortably on points without anything else happening it's still mad to believe that Harry Scarf was boxing in the Harringay Box Cup against Jermaine Brown at 75 kilos and here he is now as a welterweight and Jermaine's a super mid Ah, it goes to show, man. Physiology is different. But yeah, even back then, I think, yeah, he beat, yeah, Harry beat Jermaine back in the day. So kind of always kept the distant eye out for him. I mean, he's trained by Clifton Mitchell, so you know he's going to be fit. You know he's going to be strong. You know he's going to have, he's going to have had a tough camp, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, I don't know what you do. So actually, at some point, does Joe Pickford fight a Harry Scarf? And if so, how does that fight happen? Oh, how does that fight go? Sorry. It, yeah, so I think, you know, if we look at that Sky show in total, definitely two breakout performances, Adam Azim and Richard Riakpo, because that Dion Juma win shouldn't be sniffed at. And then if you broaden it out, you look at the Joe Pigford win and you go, wow. And then the Caroline Dubois win kind of points at greater promise ahead. And I think that's what the Sky show has to do. Now, can they do that next week with the Savannah Marshall show? We'll see. But what's, yeah, Sky can't afford to have off nights. Like with the model they have, their prospects have to deliver. It literally has to be that winner stays on mindset. Like you have to keep delivering. You have to keep taking a few risks. You have to be able to hurt your opponents because that's what the fans want. We want to see that clear daylight between what Matchroom were giving us, which was like safe matchmaking, fights where you knew the A side would always win, into something where we either get a, a damn good statement or we get a shock. We love shocks. I mean, that's what we want. We want to know that these guys are being put in tough. How you balance those competing objectives? Oh, God only knows. Um, now, now, if we just go around the houses, man. Number one, big tip of the hat to, to Steve Goodwin. Um, apparently, the show on Saturday was quite well attended. People enjoyed it. Fights were competitive. Fights were interesting. So, good to see he's still... Still hang in there. Do you know what? I've just realized I haven't even talked about Dan Aziz. <laughs> oh, man. Like, this is what happens when you get this late into the evening. I haven't even talked about Dan Aziz. So, let me come back. I'm going to come back to Dan. And I want to just you know, shine a light on Steve because Steve's still pushing on. A lot of people were in the kind of wait and see mindset in terms of small hall. Steve's just gone and said, I'm just going to do what I do. You're going to get your GB boxing series and it's going to kind of all direct itself into box mania. And fair play. You know, Steve's always tried a little thing here and there. You know, like, things like the screens have worked. You know, I was looking back at some of the old Goodwin 
photos I had and some of the old video clips. Those shows didn't look too bad, actually. So credit to Steve for, you know, investing in the experience and investing in the quality of the, the imagery. So, you know, I can't say too much negative at the moment. Hopefully, his operation continues to grow and strengthen. But now, you know, I've got to come back to Dan the Seas. You see, I'm generally quite biased when I talk about Dan. So I'm going to talk about this in terms of the Dan that I know. So, when I saw Dan on Thursday, he was amped up about the Tinker fight. And it was because he was going to get a chance to just stay in the trenches and just swing. I'm going to hit him, he's going to hit me, we're going to find out who the toughest is. And there was all the emotion about what had happened in the past and all of that. And rest assured, you know, Dan wanted to show Matthew Tinker. It ain't like it was in the amateurs. So, you go from that energy to them being told probably Thursday evening. That Matthew Tinker ain't going to be able to fight. Now the issue with that is. It's deflating. Because you've built yourself up for that. You're now deflated. And you go through a period of. I don't even know if I'm going to fight or not. That's the thing. So Dan goes to the point where he doesn't know if he's going to fight or not. And credit to Carl Greaves. Man. Carl Greaves has a magic address book. <laughs> so Carl Greaves. In his magic address book. Is able to get hold of Reese Cartwright. And I think Reese has said it himself. His manager said, nope, we ain't taking that fight at short notice. It does nothing for us. Uh, so they rang Reese. I imagine it was Carl that rang Reese, and Reese said, yeah, I'll take the fight. And there you go. In no time at all, you have a you have a replacement for Matthew Tinker. Now, I kind of knew Reese Cartwright just because of his connection to Dennis. So I knew that Dennis was hoping to get him televised. But we didn't really know much about him. We saw the Shikan Pitters fight, and you're like, eh. Not sure about this. It ain't even your weight class. And then you see that he's fighting Dan. You're like, same problem with Shikan Pittis. This isn't really a weight class. And I didn't expect Dan to steamroller him simply because I was like, it's going to take Dan a while to figure out who he's got in front of him. But I didn't think Reese would be as tricky as he was. He, he knows his way around a ring. That's one thing you can say for absolute certain. Um, ungainly, a bit awkward. Without the finesse of a Mark Leach, but kind of similar movement patterns and able to avoid some of those shots. But what I think he realized, and you guys have heard me say this often enough, Dan's just deceptive. When he hits you, it doesn't look like it should feel like it does. Like, it's just deceptive. And you take the first few. In the second round, you take a few more. By the fourth round, it gets harder and harder to take those shots. And you're like, God, the power's not dropping off. And so I'm watching the fight and I'm just saying, yeah, yeah, Reese Cartwright's feeling these now. You could see him starting to break down physically as Dan's just chopping away. I actually wanted Dan to do more. I thought he was waiting for the perfect opportunity too often. And I'm sure when Dan watches the fight back, he'll see all these opportunities where he got in position and didn't jab. Whereas Reese Cartwright, as soon as his feet were in position, he let his hand go. He let that jab go. Bang. And I think Dan's got to learn to do that. You know, there's a lot of talk about Dan Aziz being Marvin Hagler or being the spirits of Marvin Hagler. And yeah, there's some truth to that because that's Dan's favorite fighter. But here's the thing about Hagler. He was relentless. If there was an opportunity to hit someone, he hit them. Wrists, arms, neck, it didn't matter. He hit them. Why? Because it deprives him of thinking time. A lot of time, I think, when I watch Dan fight, he gives his opponents thinking time. He doesn't realize how threatening his 
his strength and his power are. He doesn't realize that. And if he did, he'd do it more often. And that's what I always implore Dan to do. I don't give him any technical advice. I just say, do more of what you're doing. You know, cut out the dead space. And I don't think guys will live with you. People won't go the distance. That's what makes these guys like Baturbiev and back in the day, Govodchik and, you know, when Bivol was coming up. That's what made them good. They had an ability to suffocate you and just to be like, well, you're not going to get time to think. Look at what Baturbiev did against Marcus Brown. Just deprived him of time and space to think. And eventually, your brain just starts to retreat and go, look, let's just get out of this alive. And I think... Dan needs to get to that place. And I don't think that's a technical thing. I think that's a mental thing. And it's him having to be critical when he's watching his own fights back. You know, I think that's, that, that's the next stage in the evolution between British level and then being able to just go to the moon and back. That's going to be the missing piece. Can, can Dan Aziz do two things? One, can he do more of what he currently does? Two, can he start refining that? Can he be a bit more creative with his right hand? Can he use the left uppercut a bit more? You know, can he start using some punches as distractions for other punches? All these sorts of things. And Dan's intelligent enough and driven enough to, to incorporate all of that. So I have nothing but confidence in his ability to do so. No idea why I forgot to say that in relation to the boxer show, but it's been that sort of day. One of the fights I saw that really broke my heart was Miguel Burchelk versus... Jeremiah Nakatila, um, Namibian guy. And, you know, Burchell's moved up to lightweight now, hasn't he? I think making 130 was hard for him. I never thought that fearsome puncher we remember Burchell being pre-Oscar Valdez would be a shadow of the man that he was. It goes to show sometimes that when someone takes away the thing that you take pride in the most, the road to recovery is really hard. He looked the shell of the fighter we remember. And he got... Oh, man. He just got, like, Nakatila was playing with him. And there was a time when I was like, yeah, put Burchelt in with anyone, man. He's a good fight for anyone. And after Valdez left hooked him into, into oblivion, he's just not been the same. Now, we had Julius Ndongo, when you're one of these long, rangy Namibians who looks like he's the part. And then they fall apart to a few body shots. So I'm not going to get too happy about this Nakatila guy. He looks good, but what's going to happen when people start attacking his ribs? Will he still look that good? I think only time will tell. But I was gutted for Miguel Burchell. You know, I don't know what you do next. Do you carry on? Is the love for the game still there? I don't know. But, you know, he gave us some some stunning knockouts. Man. And, you know, it's only now we look at him, we have to give Georgie Jupp some respect for going all the way out there and facing Miguel Burchell. Whatever Frank thought he was achieving by doing that, baffles me but on that card as well i think you had uh delante thomas a young kid another ohio boxing champion you know they, they keep producing them you know, another one is terrell gosher who lost to tim zoo that's a hell of a win by the way you know if tim zoo's talking about world titles that's the win that kind of puts you in that discussion because i think gosher had lost to uh lara Erickson Lubin, and now Tim Zhu. That's three defeats for a guy who boxed at the 2012 Olympics. Because that's not a bad record. Um, so I don't know what Tim Zhu does next, but, you know, onwards and upwards. Yeah, this is a good time in boxing because now we're starting to see 
that new wave of names like the Shakur Stevensons and so forth. Now they're starting to ascend to the world title picture. You know, we need to see the same in the heavyweight division, but we're seeing it at welterweight. We're seeing it in all the other divisions. But if we just move it on in terms of like, you know, the, the rumor and innuendo moving around the sport at the moment, um, Sky have really offered Danny Garcia the Kell Brook fight. Oh, man. Um, that'll be interesting. Actually, the more I think about that fight, the more I'm like, if you're an aging Kell Brook, the best opponent you could have is Danny Garcia because Danny Garcia is more timing and a precision guy than a work rate guy. So it's not like you're going to take loads of punishment, but the punches you get hit with are going to hurt you. You know, And if Kel's got anything left post Amir Khan, I think this will show us what he's got. Now, if that fight happens in the UK, that's the fight we have to go to. It's a, I still think that's a big fight. That's a meaningful fight. They're not the same generation. I'm trying to think. How old Danny Garcia now? He's got to be, what, early 30s? So he's not that much behind Kel. Maybe he's 32, 33. Kel's, what, 34, 35? Well, actually, on reflection, I'm now seeing this as a, a viable option. And that'd be good in the UK. I think it'd be nice to get Danny Garcia in the UK. It'd be nice to get Crazy Angel Garcia here as well. So if Sky can make that happen, fantastic. You know, these are the sort of things as British boxing fans we want. We don't have to always go to Vegas to get this sort of experience. So I'm on board with that. Knowing full well that at some point Kel might have to fight Amir Khan again. And then we'll see who he fights. Because he's going to have to show that he's got something left. So I don't know who Amir Khan would choose to fight. Because he has to find a fight that's low risk, but relatively high reward. Oh, what else has been happening? Devin Haney, seemingly signing to fight George Cambosis in Australia. And as everyone's been saying for years, he had to get away from Eddie Hearn to do it. There's no more damning indictment that all that money DeZone invested in Devin Haney, the private jets being sat there, here, there, and all, all of that stuff. And Devin had to leave Eddie to go and do it. So when does the penny drop? When does the penny drop for Eddie Hearn? When does the self-awareness kick in? When does the self-reflection kick in? When does he say, Jesus, I'm the problem. I'm the problem and I need to fix it. When does that kick in? Because I struggle to understand the whens, the whys in the house. I really, really do. So... When I when I look at Devin Haney, look, and, and the kid's been brilliant since he was seventeen. Like we've all kind of tracked his career, probably longer than that. And at twenty three years old, he's chasing undisputed, right? And people say, "Ah, oh, he's a legit undisputed." Oh, whatever, man. It's, it's all a mess. But now that he's on top rank, he can fight Lomachenko, and that will put all questions to bed. Can he do it? Yeah, he's got the talent to do it, but can George Cambosos really just be that savage in the ring and cause Devin Haney problems? Can he put him down is more the question, because I think you're going to need a knockdown to beat Devin Haney. You got maybe even two knockdowns. I don't know if he can do that, because if you look at Haney's chin, it almost looks like he stole it from a bigger human being and just sort of welded it onto his, onto his own jaw. But no, that's, that's going to be good, and it's going to be interesting to see how many people start going, well, Eddie, I need to leave you for a couple of fights to get what I need to get and I might come back. 
but by then will the Hearn American experiment be over? Because there's been some traction on Twitter. I think Mark Ortega's trying to talk about Matchroom in the US being a disaster and people are trying to shoot him down. This is what I'll say to you. There are people within Matchroom who are telling the you know their close associates, and sometimes I get to hear these things too. The US adventure's been a disaster. That is why they're looking elsewhere. That is why they're looking to Spain. That's why they're looking to Italy. That's why they're looking to Australia. They may start looking at Germany. They're looking at other markets because America's too hard to crack. They have to overpay for everything in America. It's not worth it. And it doesn't fit with that wider, that wider, the zone global strategy. You know, boxing is going to become increasingly minor in terms of where they focus. The focus is going to be on tech, then it's going to be on the, the blue chip sports, and then boxing will kind of be at the, on the back burner because boxing hasn't delivered when it had the chance to. So what does that mean for the fighters? Do you start looking elsewhere? You know, Eddie will always be Eddie in the UK because he's figured out the UK market. I don't think he's quite figured out the US market yet because he doesn't seem to be delivering the events that blow them away the same way we get blown away here. And it's not just him. Look, Crawford had to leave Bob Arum to get what he needed. Everyone's had to leave at some point. Javante Davis is having to leave Mayweather promotions to get what he wants. I like seeing boxers take charge of their own careers. This is good because now you can't blame anyone when it doesn't work for you. This is exactly what we needed to see in boxing. So I'm a thousand percent on board with this. I'm a thousand percent happy about this. So... It looks like Joshua Usyk's on, and as we expected, Eddie's gone running to the Middle East, begging them for money for the fight. Now, we've got a Russian owner of a football club having to sell the club because he's under, you know, sanctions and asset freezes, seizures, and so forth, right? And that's all for human rights violations and stuff. And yeah, you know, whatever your view on the war is, like, the rules are the rules. We have no rules for Saudi Arabia. They can buy football clubs here and they can operate them with impunity because they have the oil that we need. They can engage in acts that are war crimes by any definition and they are then able to you know, stage fights involving British fighters sanctioned by the British board who will send their officials to this fight and very few people bat an eyelid. Boxing fans don't care about anything. And the unfortunate thing is, you know, they're the ones who cry the most about things. Whereas when the pressure's on and you're like, okay, what do you really stand for? What are your principles? And that's Saudi's fine. Ah, uh, well, the, the WWE go there, the golf goes. I'm like, no, we're talking boxing here. We're boxing fans. Do we really want this? Part of me's ambivalent about it, but... In light of what we're doing to Russia for what they're doing to Ukraine, I think Saudis should be held accountable for what they're doing in Yemen. And it's not like Yemen isn't a country that's produced boxers that have delighted British fans. Kid Galahad, Prince Nassim Hamid, to name two. So, you know, we have to have that kind of respect. I, much like the first one, I won't be putting any money into that fight if it's in Saudi. Will I watch it? For journalistic purposes, I may watch it. But generally speaking, no. I have zero interest. Um, it feels like a cash grab. You know, if this fight didn't happen, who would Joshua have fought that would have made a comparable level of income for him? No one. And like I said, he's a, he's a business. And that's, this, this is not on Joshua. Like, I don't expect Joshua to have a moral conscience 
because after the, the last time they gave this guy a microphone to say something, um, 80% of his fans turned on him for saying support black businesses. So you know, why would he even come out and make comments about Saudi Arabia? And I don't want to see anyone tweeting, oh, Joshua hasn't said anything about Saudi Arabia. You've made it so that Joshua can't say anything about anything. You know, the people who were giving him a hard time over that speech in Watford back in 2020. I mean, this is what you create now. But it poses a fascinating question because I remember when I was coming up, when I was younger, and I was always told that, yeah, you can't mix sport and politics. You can't mix sport and politics. But I grew up in Zimbabwe, remember this. So I grew up when South Africa were under that, they, they were, I mean, they, they were, is it a blockade? I don't know what you say. They were, they were banned from international sport for a long time. And it wasn't until, you know, the commitment to elections was established that they were allowed to do it again. So sport and politics have always mixed. You know, and there are probably people listening to this who were, who were there when the Black Lives Matter movement happened saying, you know, we don't want politics on the sports field. Yes, you do. You just don't want politics that you're not comfortable with on the sports field, in the sporting arena. Because when people were wearing Ukrainian flags, it was applause. I'm not saying it's right, I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just a thing. Things were accepted. It's just when people feel uncomfortable and threatened, they're like, oh, well, sport and politics shouldn't mix. Sadly, they do. Now, whether the boxing media, which they very rarely do, will hold her accountable and say, when are you going to talk about what the Saudis are doing to other countries? I don't know. I don't know. But as fans, would we boycott that? Well, we'd definitely boycott it if it was in Russia, wouldn't we? But when it's Saudi, nah. Because deep down, no one really cares that Yemeni lives are being lost. That. I think that might be one of the sad parts of our sport. Like we do so much well and we do so much badly. And this is one of those things we do badly. Um, what we do well, though, is produce amateur stars. Now, I tried to keep abreast of what was happening in the national championships. I dropped a few names. So here's where I've got to shout out Damien again. Like This guy was spot on. So I've got to shout out um, obviously, like I said, I was keeping track over the weekend. The young kid, Leo Atang, man, looked good. Um, I mean, <laughs> I don't know how you're 80 kilos at that age, but, hey, you know I mean? And he was 76 the year before, so the kid's growing. Like, you know, will he be a 92? Will he be a 92 plus? Absolutely zero idea. But what I can say is, you know, the kid can fight. Can really, really, really fight. So credit to Damien Lithgow, credit to... Ah, uh, head trainers at Ashley. Can't even remember now. But yeah, so I think it's Ashley Martin. So shouts out to him. I I just remember they had a they had a young lady. Is it fifty one kilos? I think it was. And she beat Rihanna DeForo. And there was a lot of energy around Rihanna DeForo. People were talking about her being the truth and so on and so forth. So what they're building up there in York in Legion's gym. Yeah, it's impressive. Listen, I might have to go up there and see what they're cooking, man. I might have to go and see what, what that secret sauce is because, you know, <laughs> they're producing guys that are good on the iron. They're, they're winning. That's the important thing, man. They're winning. And as I say, man, the younger they are when they win, the brighter the future they've got in this game. So congratulations to those guys. Now, I could talk forever and a day and I'll probably miss some stuff off, guys, but I'm so far over my deadline. I'm going to sign off at this point and say... Let's let's all try and be civil to each other. That's what I want to say to people. Like, you know, we can't always be perfect. 
and I put myself at the top of this list. I'm not always perfect. You know, if there's a fight card and I'm, and I'm live tweeting, what I'm essentially giving you is just a stream of consciousness, right? And yeah, there are risks that come with that. You can get some things right. You can get some things wrong. I'm surprised sometimes that I'll tweet something really banal and it will get like 200 likes. I'm like, where did that come from? But then I'll say something insightful and it will just get one. Or I'll say something really dumb and it will get... You can't legislate for what connects with the people. All you can do is just be real and say, look, I'm going to say some things that are going to be close to the knuckle. I'm going to say some things that aren't. If you want to get offended and cry about things, it's more reflective of you. You know, the easiest thing we can do in this world of social media is scroll on. That's what the scroll function is there for. As soon as you see something you don't like, you scroll on. You don't always have to comment on it. Because quite frankly, I don't care about your opinion. You want to talk boxing? Yeah, let's talk. But you want to talk about other stuff? I don't know most of the people like that. I don't know you as men and women in your daily lives to be able to know if I can have that discussion. Boxing-wise, yeah, we can have any discussion, and I think it's fair. But people are too quick to get offended. People are too quick to be the victim for clout, as if somehow they've got this superiority over everybody else. We don't care what you think. Yeah, we're all, we're all adults listening to this. Well, hopefully. We have our own opinions, and our opinions aren't formed overnight. Our opinions are formed based on how we've come up. So... I don't need to be getting into back and forth about someone else's opinion. I'm, I'm way past that now. You know, I scroll on and if people labor the point, they just get blocked. And if everyone did that, I think we'd be far happier online than we currently are. Got it. That's probably a fair point to sign up. And then I'll say, take care, guys.